All right, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vines, built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it, so he expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, tell me what I will do to my vineyard. I'm going to take away its hedges, and it shall be burned. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but they shall come up with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain not on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, and behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, weeping. In the first seven verses here, we have this song, and beginning with verse 8, and um, going all the way through verse 23, I'm going to have you read them on your own. The Lord, as a result of not getting what he had labored for, he wants them to judge. What did I do wrong? I gave you the prophets, and they came to teach and correct But when it came forth to receiving the fruit, and that is really um, this love relationship he calls in verse 1, Israel his well-beloved. But instead, they turned away from him, and they rebelled, and he refers to them, therefore, as wild grapes. But he's basically saying, there's nothing more that I could have done, therefore. The therefore begins with six woes, that begin in verse 8. Verse 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, and 22 are the woes that he pronounces now upon Israel. I pulled a book off the shelf today that I hadn't read in 10 years. It's called The Marketing of Evil uh, by David Kuppelin. And uh, this was written in 2005, so it's 10 years old. And I just cut out the chapters of what he was seeing on the horizon. And I'll just touch on a couple of them. And um, let's just pick um, a very famous one of these woes. It's chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All right, let's make the parallel. This was written to Israel. As it pertains to you and I today, the church in particular, um, we've allowed, instead of being the influence in society, society has somehow got its way into influencing us. Now, Judy and I, right before we came here, we sat down, and I haven't had a chance since Curtis Bauer has been here to watch Agenda 2. And so we watched the whole thing. I was more blown away watching uh, this one, knowing what I was going to talk about tonight, well, try to talk about tonight (laughs) during the study because it pertains to a very well 
orchestrated plan that goes back to actually this last generation, where things have changed so radically that there is a clearly laid out agenda. With that, let me give you a word of encouragement for a uh, Christmas present. Pick up agenda two. And um, basically what is happening in our country today is leading for the fall and demise of a very well-crafted plan. One of the speakers on um, Agenda 2 is a gentleman who wrote the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Now, when I say that, uh, who's familiar with what I'm talking about? Okay, the book is about the Federal Reserve. It is neither federal or a reserve. It is a private bank. We don't know who the leaders really are. And their first meeting took place on Jekyll Island, sort of off the shores of South Carolina, North Carolina, somewhere in that area. He's one of the speakers in it. And I thought it was interesting timing because today the big news is the Fed, that's what they call them, raised the interest rate for the first time since this was invented, an iPhone. It was in 2006. And we've been at all-time lows. And now they've made this move. Well, who tells them to make the move? Who's behind? Who's the power that's pulling strings? Well, that's all part of a very well-crafted and designed plan that goes way back to 1913 to bring the United States of America from a land that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles um, to be a socialist, communist country. And its infiltration has made many inroads. Um, The book is outdated, and I I was hesitant even to bring it up. But when I looked at one of the woes being woe to those who call evil good and good evil, you know, the generation that that I grew up in in the the 60s and what I've seen really is a change. These are the top 10 things that comprise this whole book. The marketing blitz, number one, selling gay rights to America. Well, we know that that... Recently, the Supreme Court has taken its stand on that. The big lie, number two, is the myth of church-state separation. That's the second part of his book. Chapter three is killing culture. Who's selling sex and rebellion to our children? Uh, The multi-culture madness is chapter four. How Western culture was turned upside down in one generation. Chapter five, the family meltdown. The Campaign to Destroy Marriage. Chapter 6, Assessed with Sex. We have this uh, fundamental science unleashed at a catastrophic revolution that permeates um, most TV programs that you see today. Sabotaging our schools. Well, one of the people on Agenda 2 went as far as to say that she wouldn't consider sending their kids to, because of the core curriculum that's in there, which is basically teaching socialism to our young kids as as soon as they possibly can. And forget about college altogether, because uh, Curtis Barrow was speaking at some famous university, can't remember which one it was, and afterwards a guy got up, looked very sophisticated and intelligent, and he said, Mr. Bowers, I'm very, very impressed with your knowledge of communism and the Fabian Society and how it all began with Karl Marx and Lenin and Earth Day. A lot of people don't realize Earth Day and Lenin's birthday are one and the same. And there's a whole another agenda behind Greenpeace. And he just 
follows it all the way up to our current administration. And it's easy to Google to find out where these people are at. And most of them, many of them are Muslims, and almost all of them are, are socialists. And by the time you're done with it, you're very persuaded by his presentation. This guy got up and said, you're very, very knowledgeable, Curtis, with what you have. And um, Curtis says, I knew more was coming, but I didn't know what. And then he said, I want you to know I'm a professor here at this university, and I'm a communist, and you're going to lose. As a matter of fact, you've already lost. So this is just something that's sort of fresh in my head because I was watching it about an hour and a half ago. And this has crept into our schools. And personally, I'm not shocked. And number two, I'm not surprised. Because my Bible says that, that um, the days are going to wax worse and worse. They're not going to become better and better. This is what chapter one of Isaiah was all about. Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet because he really didn't have a whole lot of good to say. And as we turn a corner from 2015 to 2016, we see it just getting worse and worse. Another chapter, the media matrix, how the press creates a world of illusion we think is real. They had a whole section on here on just global warming and what a scam it really is. But how it's draining, along with Obamacare, which is a well-crafted plan, basically to bankrupt America. This is all part of getting us out of the way. The biggest threat to socialism and communism is the freedom that we have with these three institutions, the family, the church, and government, in that order, and how they've infiltrated, even to the smallest, minute ways, changing our culture. Blood confessing how lying markets sold America on unrestricted abortion. And then I heard a stat tonight that blew my mind. I know about the 57 million, says Roe v. Wade from 73. But worldwide, the number is 320 million babies that have been killed worldwide. Gang, that's the entire population of the United States of America, 320 million. In the last chapter, and again, this is old news. This is 10 years ago. Look how far it's come since then. The last hope, the fall and rise of American Christianity. I've seen a lot of change in the last 10 years. Anyway, it was exactly this, what brought down Israel, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We have a big therefore in verse 24. So I'll look back at our Bibles, chapter 5 of Isaiah. Because they brought forth bad fruit instead of good fruit, the Lord said, therefore, judgment is imminent and judgment will come. And everybody is asking the question, where is the United States of America in Bible prophecy? Why aren't we mentioned Are we not the most powerful nation on the planet? Well, we were, but we were also a country at one time, took a strong stand for Israel and blessed Israel. In Genesis 12, 3 says, I'll bless those who bless you, but I'm going to curse those who curse you. And we are no longer standing with Israel. So the Lord is patient, but um, we're living in a time, I wonder how many more Christmases will we see? How many more times will I get to go to Haiti or, or um, Israel just because the, the signs of the times are really all over the place? All right, well, that was pretty discouraging for an opening chapter, don't you think? Well, guess what? The Lord is still on the throne, and that, that's what chapter 6 is all about. You think he's surprised with anything that's happening? No, he told us straight out ahead of time. And the last times, this is what, exactly what was going to happen.
The Lord's still on the throne. He's being patient. And this is where we were on Sunday. Near that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. His train and his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Now on Sunday, we took this vision of heaven that Isaiah saw. Uzziah reigned for a long time, 52 or 57 years, I can't remember. And he was one of the eight righteous kings in Judah. But after him, it's going to start going downhill. And what we did on Sunday is we went to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And we saw almost exactly the same thing. Tonight, I want to add a little bit more detail. Instead of going to Revelation 4 or 5, there's another scene in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. So let's turn over there. My prayer for Sunday is when we talk about heaven, that God is on the throne. He is sovereign. Nothing is catching him off guard. We mentioned that Paul was taken there. Micaiah was taken there. Daniel got to see it. Of course, John wrote about it. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12, being in heaven and what he saw, what he heard. But to me, Ezekiel 10 zeroes in on what Isaiah calls seraphim. In Revelation 4 and 5, in the Greek, it's zoa, or living creatures. But there's more detail about these four living beings in chapter 10 of Ezekiel than anywhere else in the Bible. And I couldn't resist in going here tonight. So let's pick it up in verse 9. He says, When I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim. Uh, Isaiah calls them seraphim, and here Ezekiel calls them cherubim. One wheel by one cherub, another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of barrel stone. And as for their appearance... All four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now when they went toward any of the four directions, they did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. Well, these four beings have four faces, we read, and um, what we have here is something I can't describe because it gets into, I think, multidimensionalism, because they're going in four directions all at the same time if I'm reading this correctly. They, and followed in the direction the face was heading, they did not turn when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels, the forehead, they were full of eyes round and about. Now, as for the wheels, uh, they were called, in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. Okay, so each one of, of these cherubim, each one of them has four faces. Each one of those faces is going straight forward at the same time. Are you kind of tracking with me? This is really weird. And it's happening when we, on Sunday, what I tried to um, illustrate by finding something on the Internet was while all this is going on, what we're reading right now, it says there was thunder and lightning and voices intermixed with what we're, what we're reading right now. What we're told in Isaiah is that one was saying to the other one, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you read Revelation 4, it seems like they're all saying it all at the same time. So when we put it all together, we have a much complete, more complete picture. Each one had four faces. The face of a one was a cherub, another was the face of a man, the other had the face of a lion, and the fourth had a face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chabar. Now, when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherub stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Shabar. And I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man were under the wings. Well, here's the only place where it talks about hands. And other places it said with two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, remember? Here we're seeing that they have likeness of hands interjected. Verse 22, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar. Their appearance and their persons, they each went straight forward. And this is what I can't try to explain to you. I think it's something that until we're actually there observing it, we're going to, okay, now I get it. They each went straight forward. How could each of them go straight forward? Okay, they're going lightning fast, back and forward, all facing whichever direction they're facing, going straight forward. And then they have these wheels that are called wheel that are moving simultaneously along with them. Now, somewhere, someday you're going to hear that the Bible teaches that there's UFOs, okay? And they're going to point to Ezekiel chapter 10 for their proof text. And they say, see, here's a wheel inside of a wheel, just like a flying saucer. Believe me, there's books out there that use this as their slam dunk case proof that there are flying saucers. One thing I'll guarantee you, these are not flying saucers. Well, what are they then? They're seraphim, cherubim, They're called Zoa in the book of Revelation. There's four of them. And they're continually around the throne of God saying to each other, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And they're just worshiping him continually. Wow. (laughs) That's all I can say after reading chapter 10. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. The robe of the Lord filled the temple In verse 2, these seraphims had six wings. Like I said earlier, two covered his face, two covered their feet, and two they flew. And they cried one to another. Now, as Isaiah sees this happening, he says, Woe is me, I, I, I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, 
and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the servants flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. It's another way of saying that somehow um, sin is forgiven and put away and your sin is purged. I had to stop there because it reminded me of something that took place in the New Testament where sins were being forgiven before Jesus died on the cross. And with that, I'm going to have you turn to um, Mark chapter 2 in the New Testament. Just getting back from Israel, um, we were fortunate when we were at Capernaum to have um, the, the synagogue there. I like to tell people, when we go to Capernaum, you guys are at an A spot. This is really the very spot where Jesus' first century synagogue was built. It was built with the, um, was on the same foundation. Different synagogue was built and later destroyed, but the original spot is right there. So it's a pretty heavy moment, realizing that it was in Capernaum, chapter 2, verse 1, he entered Capernaum. This was sort of the Lord's headquarters for his ministry. It's where Peter lived. It was heard that he was in the house. It could have been Peter's house. Don't know for sure. But the word got out. The Lord is in somebody's house. So immediately, it says, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, nor could they come even to the door. And he preached the word to them. So here's a home Bible study. And we got people... (laughs) going out past the door just to hear Jesus speak. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when the crowd could not come near him because of the crowd, or when they couldn't get near to the Lord because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed which the paralytic was laying. Now put yourself in the story. Everybody here has a best friend. Let's say your best friend is a paralytic. And um, the word is out that whoever Jesus prays for, whether they're demon-possessed, whether they're blind, and we've even heard that people that couldn't walk can walk. And you hear that and you have a best friend. Aren't you going to do everything in your power to get him to that Bible study? Well, that's what, that's what these guys are at. So they got, um, they were very tactful. They realized, we're not going to get through this crowd. So what they did is somehow they got up in the roof. They started tearing the roof apart. I'm sure that had to interrupt the Bible study to some degree, watching this guy just sort of come down right in front of Jesus' Bible study. Here's a guy laying on the bed. And here, here are your best friends. Okay, Lord, right, do it right now. Pray for him, Lord. And we know that he's going to walk. And so Jesus saw their faith and their friendship. And he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiving you. Now, if I'm the best buddy who has my friend there and I want to see him walk, I'm saying, great. Sins are forgiven. Great, great, great. 
We want him to walk. (laughs) But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts and say, why does this man speak blasphemy like this? And here's a question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question. Who can forgive sin except God alone? We see it in Isaiah that he took an angel to have some coals that purged his sin and his iniquity. Only God can do that. So the question is, then immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, and he said to them, why are you guys reasoning about these things in your hearts? See, he was reading their minds. He knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly what was growing through their their mind, and that is a question that he wanted them to ask. So he, he, he poses to them this question. He says, hey guys, what do you think is easier? Do you think it's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or do you think it's easier to say, rise up your bed and walk? Now, if you say the first one, well, how do you know for sure? Can you look inside the guy's heart? Oh, yeah, he was a terrible sinner, but now I see he's got a clean heart. You can't see that. But if you know a guy who's been crippled his whole life, and you say, get up and walk, he says, what do you think, what do you think is easier? Well, it's easier in their minds to think um, he can say your sins are forgiven. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus, before Calvary, was into forgiving this man's sin. And he said to the paralytic, first of all, he said, okay, now your sins are forgiven. Now I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go away to your house. And immediately he rose, and took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And his friends that had faith, they were the ones that brought them. A lot of applications here. Um, We're going to be talking in just a little bit. Matter of fact, let's go back to 9 and 10. I would bet everybody here tonight is here because they love the scriptures and you like to come and have a good meal. We've pretty much figured out there's nothing in this old world, even the excitement of Christmas, that can satisfy the soul like a good Bible study that can get interrupted and the Lord can go with the flow and forgive a guy of his sins and then to make it even that much better, say, okay, you're healed. Get up and go home. And um, everybody was amazed. When we look at verse 9 and 10, after the sin was forgiven, the Lord asked the question to Isaiah. He says, who can I send and who's going to go for us? I think of the four men in Mark's gospel. They were willing to go. By faith, Jesus acknowledged, these four guys have faith. They went out of their way to bring them to me. And so the Lord is asking today, who's going to do my work? Excuse me. 
And who's willing to go to a neighbor, um, invite him uh, to a Bible study, invite him to a prayer meeting, maybe give a God of wonders to him, maybe giving a Seeking and Finding God a booklet? Who's going to do it? Uh, we read in the New Testament, how are they going to know unless somebody is sent? I got a bad voice that I need a good amen right now. Come on, I get my, my voice is really bad. A little sympathy? Just a little. Here, the Lord is saying, who's going to do it? Now, the ball is in our court game. And um, here, the right response, Isaiah, hands up. Here I am. I'm your man. Send me. And um, some people take off and they're not called. And that's a whole other subject. There's some people that are out there that shouldn't be out there today in ministry. But not in this case. The Lord is asking straight out and seeing that Isaiah was the only one there, <laughs> he got the job. And then he, did, he says this. He says, I want you to go and tell this people, go ahead, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Now, let's stop with 9 and 10. And I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 13. Because in Matthew 13, Isaiah 7 is fulfilled. Matthew 13. I'm sorry, Matthew. uh, Yeah, Matthew 13. In the first nine verses, we have a parable. We call it the parable of the sower. And he explains that what we're doing tonight, we're having a Bible study. He said, he spoke to them a parable. He said, behold, the sower went out to sow. Um, These days we have John Deere tractors and spreaders. We do it that way. In the old days, they had a bag of seed, and they put their hand in it, and they just whip it out. And he goes on to say some of it fell by the wayside, and the birds came and, and took it away. That was one seed. Some of the stones <clears throat> um, placed where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, but they didn't have any depth of earth. And when the sun came up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. And then some of them were choked. They grew, but they didn't weed the garden, and thorns and thistles took all their nutrients away. So there was a stem there, but there was no fruit. But the last one, it says, fell on good ground, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he said, he who has ears to hear, hear. And his disciples came to him and said, Lord, what's up? In verse 10. And they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it's been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. He then goes on to say, for whoever has, to him will more be given. And he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he 
has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 7 said, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. But they're not going to get it. They're going to be dull of hearing. They don't have ears to hear. They're not going to get it. And then he quotes Isaiah. Hearing, you will hear and you will not understand. Seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Uh, Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. What's going on here? Isaiah, I'm going to send you out. And I'm going to give you the word. But it's not going to turn them around. They're still going to be the wild grapes. And here, Jesus is now quoting Isaiah chapter 7 to his disciples. And he says to his disciples, you get it. You have ears to hear. And as it says here, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, And then he says to them, blessed are your eyes for they see and they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and they did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then what he does is he explains the parable to his disciples. Therefore, he says in verse um, 18, okay, guys, um, I'm going to explain to you the story that I just told them. Now, how many times have you heard that um, um, Jesus spoke in parables so that the common everyday person could understand what he's saying? Anybody hear that at all? Sure. A A lot of people have. Uh, that's not true at all. Unless the Lord opens up a, a person's eyes, unless, Nicodemus, you are born again, you're not going to get it. It's like the wind blowing through the trees, Nick. You can see that, that fruit of it, but you can't see the wind. So it is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Now, you guys are here tonight. We're having a Bible study. And what I'm about to explain to you, you're going to understand. But everybody here also has friends that you've been witnessing to for years, and they still don't get it, and maybe it's led to frustration or whatever. And it's one of two things that you do when that happens. Sometimes you're patient with them, and you continue to pray. Other times the Lord says, enough with them, shake the dust off your feet, let's go to the next town. And um, don't cast your pearls before swine. That's sort of a very firm way of saying don't waste your time on somebody who's not going to listen to you. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so let's look at the meaning. You guys will get it. Okay. When anybody hears the word of God, that's what we're doing tonight. We're having a Bible study. We're in Isaiah. What have we learned so far? Well, Isaiah said, I'll go. He said, okay, but they're not going to listen. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They became wild grapes. They didn't, 
They didn't get it because they didn't want to get it. And, um, but there are those that the Lord opens their eyes. Anyone who hears the word of God and does not understand it, uh, then comes the wicked one who snatches the, the word out of the, that was sown in his heart. This is he who receives it by the wayside. You've shared with people. Uh, they're contemplating, hmm, become a Christian. Hmm, give my life to Jesus. I could tell you story after story of the ultimatums that have been made when a husband comes home and tells his wife or a wife comes home and tells her husband, guess what, honey? I gave my life to Jesus today. You did, huh? Hmm, well, it's me or Jesus. Take your pick. And the ultimatum's been made. And a choice has to be made. And a lot of times, um, they capitulate. And they forget that the Bible says, he who loves father or mother or sister or brother or husband or wife more than me is what? Not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Gang, this is tough. Sometimes you're really putting your life on the line to be associated with Jesus. Some of the guys can't hold up. Let's go on to the next one. Because here, the, the word, and this, is, this could be manifested in a whole lot of different ways. But what's accomplished is no more word of God. That's the, the bird took it away. Well, who's the bird? Jesus tells us that there's spiritual warfare that happens every time you share Jesus with somebody. There's a battle going on. I remember, just to be sure, whenever after I accepted the Lord, um, there would be an altar call. And um, I didn't miss an altar call. I figured, what the heck? Why take a chance? And uh, maybe it didn't take the first time, so I'm going to make really, really, really sure. So if there was ever an altar call, I was always there because I wanted to make sure that I was was in. And um, you get to the next one, He who receives the word on the stony place is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Wow, this is great. Uh, Makes sense. It's what I've always been looking for, I think. It says, but yet he has no root in himself and endures for a while. Uh, But when tribulation or trials or persecution arise, Because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So now, here's the question. And there's a lot of theology that's implied with what I'm going to say next. And eternal security is one. My question is a simple one. If he heard the word with joy, and he believed for the time until he was tested, either through a trial or persecution, or somebody says, if you're going to be that crazy Jesus freak, I don't want you hanging around me anymore. My question is, was he saved from the time that he believed on the Lord and received the, the word with joy? Yeah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But what happens is with your own free will when you say, I don't want to do this anymore. That's why Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Remember on Sunday we were talking about being an overcomer? And I said, gang, it's not difficult at all. Just don't turn away from the Lord. Just keep your faith 
and don't look back. You know what Paul said? Forgetting those things that are behind. I'm looking straight on. I'm not going to believe in anything else. I'm not going to add any other doctrine except the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to hold on to that to the very end. And that's what didn't happen here. So that brings up the whole issue of eternal security. I believe in just this one verse here. I believe there's a lot of other places that would say the same. Now, let's get to the third one. Unfortunately, this is where most of American Christians are at. Now, he who received the word among the thorns, he hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Now, with this one, I would go to 1 Corinthians 3. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I want you to think it through with me. First of all, has everybody understood what I'm talking about so far? You know why? Because you have been born again. And you do have um, the spirit that opens up your understanding. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But somebody who is not born again is what they're doing. What in the world is that guy talking about? They don't have a clue. Why? Well, because they haven't been born again of the Spirit. But here are ones that they're saved. But they don't bring forth any fruit at all. But when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Jesus, uh, Paul, talking there about um, the judgment seat of Christ, he says, um, be careful how you build. Uh, If you build on wood, hair, stubble, and you just that would be the things of this life that all that are temporal and they're going to perish. And um, then there's those that that built with precious um, metals, and that's talking about things that you did in the name of Jesus that you will receive a reward for, even to the point of giving a glass of water in Jesus's name. The Lord says, "I'm writing it down. You gave, you did that in my name." And then he goes on farther to explain, make sure you do it in secret, though. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, he's going to reward you openly. Well, when's that going to happen? Well, at the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema seat. They get the word Bema from, uh, like the Olympics. When you're in the Olympics, you're giving something. When you compete... Sometimes it's a gold, sometimes it's a silver, sometimes it's a bronze. Now, then it says something interesting. He said there was one believer that had all of his works burned up. And then it says, nevertheless, his soul will be saved in the day in heaven. Well, what does that mean? That's this guy right here. This is the one who heard the word. It actually grew as a Christian, but he didn't have any fruit. I mean, he went through this whole life. He makes it to heaven, but he doesn't have anything to show for it. Why? Because he was caught up in the cares and riches of this world. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, makes perfect sense. But the good news is that if it was dependent upon any of your works getting to heaven, none of us would make it anyway. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be wise and invest in those things that are um, eternal it makes more sense to invest in the things that that are eternal rather than the things that are temporal. All right, let's get to the last one. 
And now we, we understand that everything that Jesus is talking about is somebody who hears the Bible and it is digested into the heart. I say the heart, but really it's your, your spirit and it's your soul. And you're just, um, you know, you're growing in the Lord. Let's read it, verse 23. But he who receives seed on the good ground, he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. Um, this, this is the one who it comes, we understand it's his heart, the good ground, is what he's taking in. And of course, there's different capacities. I believe in heaven there's going to be fullness of joy. I believe uh, it's possible that the hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirty, there's obviously different levels of service that people have given themselves to. And I think that'll be evaluated. And the Lord said after he is judged that he will determine what the rewards will be. Closing simple question. Did you understand that parable? That's because you, like the disciples, have ears to hear. And there's, if you're not born again, you didn't understand a single word I said. And it, it, he's pulling this now. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> he says, go for it in 9 and 10. And, um, but know this, that... Um, they're not going to turn around. And by the time we get to chapter 7 here, which I need to get into, <clears throat> um, we're going to see that judgment eventually is going to come, even though Isaiah is doing his job. Now, I really believe that the Lord goes before us and he honors the fact that we teach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times that I say, gee, I find that interesting. Uh, we are entering into the holiday seasons. And, of course, Jesus is the reason for the season. Amen? So where are we tonight? We're in one of the two chapters in Isaiah. This Sunday we're going to be in this chapter. And the following Sunday we're going to be in chapter 9. Both, both of them Christmas messages. Time and, time and chance? I don't think so. I think the Lord, the Bible talks about the Lord directing and guiding your steps. If, you, if it's in your heart to honor him, watch him create divine appointments. Watch him go before you. Watch him direct your steps. Oh my goodness, we're in chapter 7 on Sunday. Well, that's all about the virgin birth. Let's, let me give you the background to it tonight. Came to pass in the day of Ahaz. Um, this would have been... Um, the son of um, Uzziah, or his son after him, after Jotham, the son of Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, they went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail. And it was told to the house of David, saying, you know, Syrian forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of wood, and as it moved with the wind. They were scared to death. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, 
And he says, go out and I want you to meet Ahaz. And you and uh, Sher, Jehab, uh, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And I want you to say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of a smoking firebrand and for the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have taken counsel against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves, and we'll set our king over him, even the son of Tabeel. Thus says the Lord God, it's not going to happen. It's not going to stand, and it's not going to come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is resin. If we were reading that today with what we see going on, and allow me just a little sidetrack here, I would read the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Assad. That's the way it is today. Here it is, the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, going way back to this time. And what's happening in the Middle East today, with Russia being there, and Iran, they're there for one reason, that's to prop up Assad in Damascus, of all places. I can't wait to get to chapter 17. Um, because God, just like what's happening today, as uh, Israel has every reason on earth to be nervous, it would be like um, any person who knows anything about Ezekiel 38 and 39 as the Knesset and people in power, they say, hey, man, we, we see what's going on here. We're in big trouble. Uh, Russia's got its biggest warship ever created out in the Mediterranean. And um, we have them propping up Assad. And if you're in Israel today, the fear factor, because of ISIS, is sort of at a new level. And so... Here we are all these years later, and there's still fear. What was the percentage? Because I just heard it on the news. 60 to 70% um, because of uh, what's happened just in the last seven months. It went through the number of attacks that the average Israeli is somewhat anxious and nervous. Well, so was um, Israel during these times under... Um, the king of Ahaz. But the Lord says, I don't want you to worry about it. And um, because I'm going to take care of it, and so that it will be with the people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. And if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So the Lord says, I want you to give this message to the king. Tell him not to worry about it. And he's probably thinking, not to worry about it. How can I not be worried about it? Well, because God said not to worry about it. Hmm. Sound familiar? Didn't Jesus say, take no thought about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or what you're going to drink? He says, for all of these things, Gentiles worry about. And you're not a Gentile. So he says, don't worry about it. And then he says, 
Go ahead if you want to, but here's his rationale. What's it going to change? Will it add one inch to your height? Go ahead. Toss and turn all night. Or you can say, Lord, you said you're going to work all things out together for the good. No matter what happens. And uh, that's still in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight. To those that love him and are called according to his purposes. So you can worry if you want to. But with all the stuff that was coming down in Israel, what do we see? God's still on the throne. And Isaiah saw it. And he saw all the heavenly seed and how big and how powerful. On Sunday I mentioned that God measures this universe that we live in with the span of his hand. 20 billion light years apart and he has to humble himself to look into it. Don't you think he knows what's going on in your life? Isn't he the same one that knows I know every hair on your head? It's easier for God to count some more than others. Some it's really, really easy. One, two, three, four, that's it. Others, there's a whole lot more counting that's going on. But he knows the number of stars. That's mind-boggling. But then he adds this as a kicker. Oh, yeah, I call them all by name, too. I've given each one of them a name. So you think he's not aware of every little thing that you're going through? And if you acknowledge him and say, Lord, thy will be done. You know? And he's promised to work it out to the good. You know what it requires to think like that? Faith. Just plain faith. Well, I want more of that. How do I get more of that? Well, you see, faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes how? By the word of God. Exactly what you guys are doing tonight is adding to your faith. And whether you realize it or not, you're getting spiritually fed. And you're going to be going through things. You're going, you know, I was listening to Pastor Dwight's study, and I was going through this big thing. And basically he said, don't worry about it. Forget about it. Give it to the Lord. He's still on the throne. And whether you do that or don't do that is a great measure of just where you're at in your faith with the Lord. Well, here's the deal. The Lord knows exactly where you're at. The problem is we don't know. So what does he do? Oh, he sends us little tests every once in a while. Well, let's see how he responds to this one. Let's see if he'll exercise faith and trust me. It says, he goes on to tell, he says, I want you to go speak to Ahaz, and I want you to tell him, don't worry about a thing. And if he doesn't believe you, it says, moreover, in verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, if you're having a problem with this, Ahaz, go ahead, ask a sign from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. In other words, put me to the test. Ask anything you want to. But Ahaz was not a good king. Ahaz was one when he was not one of the eight good ones. He was one that did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Ahaz said, "Uh, I'm not going to ask, nor will I test the Lord. I don't want to bother him. I'm not going to test the Lord. And Isaiah had enough of that. He said, then hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? You're wearying me, Ahaz, with your indifference and your lack of faith and you're not worshiping the God and you're just asking, you're blowing, blowing me off basically right now. Are you going to weary me? 
But don't worry, God, too. You're not going to ask for a sign? Okay, then I'm going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And here we have one of the major prophecies that deal with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel literally meaning God with us. Who did he give it to? He gave it to Ahaz, a wicked king that didn't want anything to do with God's prophecies or his signs. And he said, but I'm going to do it anyway. Curds and honey he will eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Um, Okay, I'm going to just stop there because verses 10 through 16 deal with, of course, the prophecy of the virgin birth. And this is, of course, where we're going to, we'll zero in more on this on Sunday. From verses 17 now through 25, it tells of the coming invasion of the land of Judah by Assyria, which is predicted as judgment. Not referring, this one here he's saying don't worry about with uh, um, this confederation in in Ahaz. But he says, in the future, the, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah. And it will come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and the bee that's in the land of Assyria. They will come, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the cliffs of the rock, the clefts of the rock, for on all thorns and all pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and also remove the beards. It will be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, for it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It will happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for the fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for the roaming of his sheep. <clears throat> so, I don't believe it. My voice held out, and I'm right on time. It's five after. So let's then we'll pray. <laughs> Lord, we stand in awe as we consider the sending of Isaiah, knowing full well that there's going to be some people that just won't listen. And Lord, how you pulled this out of your hat, talking to his disciples about parables. Help us understand, Lord, that we need to be fed in order to be sent. But we also need to realize that there's some people that just aren't going to listen because they don't have ears to hear, neither do they want to. But I also see in chapter 7, like Ahaz, even though he doesn't want to hear, 
And there are those that want to blow us off, that you still are going to try to speak to them and give them signs and prophecies. I pray that in the same way that you used Isaiah to give this sign of the virgin birth to Ahaz, that we would pick up on what's going on here, that you're using Bible prophecy to reaffirm who you are. And Lord, as we learn your word and we come a little bit more in depth and have a little bit more spiritual meat on our bones, we'll know when it's right to speak and we'll know when it's time not to cast our pearls before the swine or to shake the dust off our feet and move on. Or those times where you really call us to invest in a person's life and seek to minister to them so that they can grow in the grace and the knowledge of who you are. So that when they are tried and tested, they'll be that good seed that's planted deep and knows your word and has that good heart and is actually able now to reproduce and bring forth that spiritual fruit that you desire all of us to have. As we look at Isaiah, we see that your beloved Israel, you did everything you could to cause them to bring forth Um, good fruit. I just pray in closing this evening, Lord, that as we see this happening to Israel, that we wouldn't make the same mistake and that we would be that seed that fell on good ground. And so, Lord, we just close tonight as we make our way through. Help us keep our priorities straight during this very, very busy time of year. And like the wise men, Lord, keep seeking you first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.